How many of you enjoy reading a good book? Raise your hand if you enjoy reading a good book. All right, a lot of you. Good, a lot of readers in here. Now let me ask you this. How many of you, when you hear a friend talking about a, a good book or you hear about a book that everyone is interested in, you have to go out and find that book almost immediately, either at the library or a bookstore, and start reading it? Anybody? Yeah? How many of you get excited about reading a good book? How many of you drop other things to read a good book? And how many of you, when you're, when you're reading a good book, read through every last word? And if you read through something you didn't really get, you go back and read it again. How many of you have books that you have read that are so good, you've read them through more than once? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, me too. I've got some, some books that I've, I've read through multiple times. That's, that's just what people who love to read do, right? We don't just skim through best-selling books and then just toss them aside. We, we read and cherish every last word, don't we? And at times, if it's really good, we'll read the book through again. Listen, believers, if we do that with good books, how much more so should we do that with God's Word? If we make time to read through a great book, how much more so should we, should we make time to read and study and examine and cherish every word that God has written to us? I mean, we should, right? Shouldn't we? But do we? I mean, this book, though it's one of the most published, most owned books in our world today, it has to be one of the most neglected bestsellers of all time. It's true. People don't read it. Many preachers don't preach it. And we don't share it like we should. And even some who do read it don't read it very often. And don't read it in its entirety. Don't read it all the way through. I've met countless number of Christians who have read parts of the Bible and other parts of the Bible they've never read. I've met some who just read through the New Testament. Don't worry with the old. I, I, I've met with some, I've talked with some who read through the New Testament in just parts of the Old Testament. They'll read through Genesis and Exodus, you know, the popular ones, maybe Psalms and Proverbs, but very few who have read through the entire Bible and have spent ample time in each part. Folks, that's a problem. You know why? Because the Old Testament just like the new is God's word. In fact, it makes up most of God's word. Do me a favor for just a moment, get your Bibles out and turn to the book of Matthew. Turn to the book of Matthew and when you get there, mark it with your finger and then close your Bible. And look up when, you're, when you've done that. Get to Matthew, mark it with your finger, Andy can't do that. He's too high-tech for us. Those of you old-school folks who have a Bible, I'm just kidding, Andy. Mark it with your finger and look at it and notice how much of the Bible is to your left. You ever notice that? 
most of God's word is found in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying the old is better than the new, but we should also not treat the New Testament as if it has eliminated the old. In the Old Testament, we have centuries worth of God's dealings with his people before sending his son. And believers, we have the whole story, don't we? We have the whole of scripture and we can now go back and reread the Old Testament with New Testament eyes, with Christ at the center, which enriches our study of his word and improves our understanding of it. So we should not neglect any part of this book, should we? It's one of the reasons why I try to go back and forth in my sermon series from New Testament books to Old Testament books and back to New Testament books. I've preached through since I've been here the book of Philippians, Ecclesiastes, 1 Corinthians, then Jonah, then I preached through John, then we went through Psalms, we just finished Ephesians, and today we are going to start a series, a new series, and a new section of Scripture that I think often gets skipped by many, and that is the Minor Prophets. I believe this section of Scripture gets neglected as much as any in our Bible reading. And let's just test this theory out for a minute. Just be honest with me, okay? How many of you right now are studying through the book of Amos, Joel, Obadiah, or Habakkuk? Anybody? Maybe one or two? Okay. Some of you are like, nice try, Graham. I know Obadiah is not a book in the Bible. Trying to trying to trick me but it is it really is surprise surprise Obadiah is a book in the Bible and for those of y'all who are studying through the minor prophets how many of you can tell me what the book of Zephaniah or the book of Haggai is about anybody give me a synopsis of Zephaniah these books often get overlooked don't they many skip this section of scripture well for the next 13 weeks we are going to camp out in the minor prophets we are going to go through the 12 books found in this section of scripture known as the minor prophets today i'm just going to do an intro into this study and then for the next 12 weeks i'm going to try to tackle a book a week i'm going to try and just give you an overview of the book try and draw out the major message from each of these books And as many of you know, I'll be able to do that better with some than others because they vary in size. Some are real small and are easy to cover the entire book. But we're going to try to get you the the major message of each of the Minor Prophet books here. And one thing that I hope happens in this study is that those of you who have just skipped this section of scripture in your in your Bible over and over again, or maybe you've just skimmed it, I hope you come to understand through this study what you've been missing. Folks, this section of scripture, though small and obscure, is extremely rich. It really is. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the table of contents. You heard me right. You're going to have to start there a lot in this series. Table of contents. I bet you never thought you'd hear me say that, right? Found in the first few pages of your Bible, for those of you spiritual folks that never have to use it. Before we begin, I just want to take a few moments this morning to explain to you the layout of the Old Testament. 
In most of your English Bibles, unless you have a chronological Bible, the Old Testament are grouped together into three different categories. First, you have the history books, which are the books of Genesis through the book of Esther. And then you have the five books of the Pentateuch at the beginning, and and those are books in the history section. And though you have some backtracking and retelling of certain stories and events, these books, for the most part, are in chronological sequence. The second section of books that you find in your Bibles is the poetry section. So you have history, then you have poetry. The poetry books are the books of Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And then in the final section of your, your, your Bibles in the Old Testament, you have the prophecy books. So you have history, you have poetry, and you have prophecy. The prophecy books begin with Isaiah, and they go through the book of Malachi. And these books, like the books in the poetry section, are not in chronological order, but are written around the time of the, of the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And these books are grouped together by size. The five larger books are placed first, and are classified as the major prophets. These include the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the latter 12 books from Hosea to Malachi are classified as the minor prophets. And the reason why they're labeled in this way is not because they're less important. All books are inspired by God, right? They're all profitable for us, for teaching, for, for training, for correcting, for training in righteousness. They're all profitable for us, so they're not, they're not less important. The reason why they're classified as minor prophets is because of their size. It's because they're much smaller than the first five books in the prophecy section of Scripture, with the exception of Daniel, which is a little smaller than, than a few of the minor prophet books. But the reason why Daniel is classified as one of the major prophets is because it's bigger than most of the minor prophets and because the events that take place in the book of Daniel occur around the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So for that reason, Daniel is classified in the major category. But in this study, we're beginning today, we're just going to be focusing in on this last section of Scripture in the Old Testament known as the minor prophets. So if you have your Bibles, look, don't leave the table of contents yet, look at where Hosea is and then turn to the book of Hosea and mark it. Though we're not going to look at any one particular book in great detail this morning, we are going to be going back and forth through several books in this section of Scripture. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little background to what was going on during this section of Scripture, when these books were written. This, I believe, will really help you out going forward. As many of you know who have read through some of the major books of the Old Testament, like Genesis and Exodus and Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you know the, the basic story, right? You know, in Genesis, God chose a man named Abram, and he called him out of a pagan land, and he set him apart for his purposes. And he eventually changed his name to Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you, all nations will be blessed. 
And that's exactly what God did, right? He made a great nation out of this man named Abraham. And God set this nation apart for himself. He protected them from famine in Genesis. He brought them to Egypt. And then they became slaves in Egypt after a time. And he comes in and he delivers them from slavery. And he says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you laws to guide you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And after many bumps along the way, he eventually does all of those things. He gives them his laws. He leads them into a certain land that he promises them. And he makes them a great nation. And he also calls out certain individuals from them. And he he puts them in positions of leadership to teach his people and also to intercede for them and to protect them from their enemies. And he eventually, God eventually, by special request made by his people, he establishes a monarchy for his people. First, he makes Saul king, right? He makes Saul king. Then he establishes the Davidic kingdom with David and his son Solomon. And during these first reign, the reign of these first three kings, God's nation is united and strong. But all of that changes with Solomon's son, right? Remember Rehoboam? Under Rehoboam, due to his oppressive and unwise rule, the nation splits in two. And 12 of the, of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 make their way up north. They leave and they go north to the northern kingdom. They establish what's called the northern kingdom. And two tribes stay in the south and become the southern kingdom. The ten that went up north set up in a new capital called Samaria, in a place called Samaria. And along with that new capital, you know what they do? They, they set up a new temple which was a big no-no because God had told them where the temple was supposed to be. He made it very clear that the temple was to be in the south in Jerusalem. But what we find during this period of time is that there were very few in either kingdom that were all that concerned with what God had said about anything. They really didn't care. So they, they, they built the temple up north and they attempted to worship God there. And it's during this time All right, you with me? It's during this time, during this divided kingdom period, that these minor prophet books were written. So that's a little background there. That's really going to help you in understanding the context of each of these books. Now let's look at a few key features from these books. First, let's look at the authorship of the books. Who wrote these books? Well, these books are thought to be autobiographical in nature. They're believed to have been written by the prophet the book is named after, okay? So Hosea wrote what? Hosea, right? Amos wrote? Jonah wrote Jonah. Very, very good, and so on. And very little is known about many of these minor prophets. What we do know, we normally get from the book. All right. Now let's look at the dates of when these books were written. The date of the Minor Prophets. What you find as you study this section of Scripture is that this book spans, these books span a long period of time, a period of over 300 years. 
For those of y'all that don't think that's a long time, think about this. The entire New Testament covers a period of time of less than 100 years and was written in less than 50. Also think about where we were as a nation 300 years ago. I mean, we were still 50 years from the American Revolution. That's a long period of time, isn't it? So these books cover a period of over 300 years, written from the late 700s to the early 400s, during the time when Israel was divided. The book of Amos, which is believed to be one of the oldest minor prophet books, was written from the mid to late 700s. And the last book to be written, many believe, was Malachi, which was written around 420 B.C. So notice here, from the 780s to the 420s. I mean, a period of over 300 years. Now, I believe that's a very, very important detail because many of us, when we read these books, we think about them all being written around the same time, don't we? And addressing the same issues. They aren't addressing some of the same issues. You just know how long these issues were going on, right? And you also learn something very important about our God. Notice the patience of our God. They were messing up for hundreds of years. God continues to send prophets after prophets after prophets for over 300 years. Boy, that really sheds some light on some things, doesn't it? It's a long period of time. Now let's talk about the audience. Most of these books are either written to those in the northern kingdom or those in the southern kingdom. Uh, Some prophets were sent to prophesy to both. Some were sent to other nations. Remember Jonah. Where did he go? He went to Assyria, right? Which is the capital. I mean, he went to Assyria. He went to the capital, which was Nineveh. You also have Obadiah. He prophesied to the Edomites. He he prophesied against Edom. So some of them went to outside nations, but the majority of them, they prophesied either to the Jews in the north or the Jews in the south. And at times when you're reading through these books, it's very tough to tell who the prophet is talking about because they'll either mention the people of Israel or Samaria or the people of Judah or Jerusalem. Now, get this. This is very important for you to understand as well. Whenever the author says Israel or Samaria, they're talking about the tribes up north. They're talking about the northern kingdom because most of Israel, 10 of the 12 tribes went north and they established a new capital in Samaria. So whenever Israel is mentioned or Samaria is mentioned, the prophet is talking about those in the north. Whenever Judah or Jerusalem is mentioned, they're talking about the kingdoms in the south because Judah was one of the two tribes that remained in the south along with Benjamin, and we know how important Judah is, right? We know that Jesus is the lion of Judah, right? He came from the tribe of Judah, and also because they remained in the south, that's where, that's where Jerusalem was. So whenever you hear Judah or Jerusalem, they're talking about those in the southern kingdom, all right? So that's just a little background. That'll help you a whole lot moving forward. Now let's talk about the major message of these minor prophets. And in the audience, I forgot to tell you this. Y'all just jot that in. I didn't leave you room on your outline there. That's my bad. But just write that in off to the side, okay? Let's look at the major message of the minor prophets now. 
though both the northern and southern kingdoms were made up of of different tribes with different places of worship in, in different areas of the land. Listen, they had one thing in common. You know what that was? They were both sinners. People in both kingdoms from the top on down had rebelled against God like the nations that surrounded them, which resulted in God sending prophets to both kingdoms. Now, when you hear the word prophet, There are many things probably popping into your head, right? Some of you are probably thinking like fortune tellers, right? Or or somebody like this here. Look at this picture here. Y'all know who this is? It's the next slide here. Nostradamus, right? It's what you think of when you think of a prophet, right? Somebody who's more of like a a predictor, a a fortune teller, somebody who's who's telling the future. But but really at this time in the scriptures, the, the prophet's really functioned more like preachers than predictors. They were people who were called by God and sent by him to a particular place to preach a particular message. Kind of sounds similar to what I'm doing, right? Yeah, more like preachers. You don't have to call me a prophet. I'm not saying that. But, it, but it's similar. They're more like preachers than predictors. And the message God gave to each of these prophets was very similar. Their message was this. They would go to a particular place and a people where God would send them and, and here would be the points from their message. First, they would affirm, number one, man is sinful. Man is sinful. It's point number one. And this point is made over and over again in this section of Scripture. And this is made over and over again all throughout Scripture, isn't it? God wanted his prophets to shine his light in this dark and dead world. And that's what the prophets did. They would go to a particular area and they would tell those who were there that they had sinned against God. For example, in the book of Amos, we'll be there in a few weeks. Amos spends the first two and a half chapters of his small book speaking against the sins of all of those in the surrounding nations. And he also calls out people in his own kingdom, in the southern kingdom, and he addresses those sins in the northern kingdom as well. Amos is basically saying, all of you guys are sinners. Every one of you. People everywhere, you have sinned against God. In the first few chapters of Amos's book, he tells the people of Damascus, the people of Gaza, the people of Tyre, the people of Ammon, the people of Moab, that they had sinned against a holy and righteous God. And then in the latter half of chapter 2, Amos turns his focus to those in his own kingdom. He's a boy from the south. He, he talks to those from the south tells them you guys have sinned as well and then he turns his focus toward those in the northern kingdom of Israel he tells all of them that he has been sent by God because of their many transgressions and again that's what the other prophets did as well listen to what Hosea said to those in the northern kingdom he tells Israel you have played the whore forsaking your God Boy, that's strong words right there, isn't it? You see why some of them, they want to run these prophets out of town, right? What a message. 
This is one of the major messages of the minor prophets. They went in, they had this common message, and a major point of one of, in, in each of their sermons was God's righteousness and man's sinfulness. Now, why did they begin with this? You know, you would have thought maybe do, a ice, do an icebreaker first, you know, kind of get people comfortable with you before you go off and say you played the whore forsaking your God. Why did, they, why did they start with this right off the bat? Well, here's the thing. God wanted them to lead with this because he knew that if people don't come to grips with his holy standard in their sinful condition, they would never come to see their need to be forgiven. It's key. I know I've said this before, but in any 12-step program for alcohol and drug addicts, the first step is realizing and admitting that you have a problem. Same is true when it comes to the redemption that God provides. You have to see your need of it before you will trust in it. Before you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you need to see your need to be saved. And unfortunately, as we're going to learn in the upcoming weeks, few heeded the message of the prophets and confessed their sin and turned away from it. And the reason why is because many in that day, like they do today, have the same issue many addicts have. They were in denial thinking they didn't need saving. They didn't think they had anything they needed to repent of. So they did not heed the message of the prophets, which was a colossal mistake. Folks, do you hear me say that? It was a colossal mistake to not heed the message of God's messengers. A message we're going to hear over and over again in this series is that it is imperative that we place ourselves under God's messengers and devote ourselves to their message, which is God's message. And the first point here is an important point. In God's message through his messengers, we must understand this. If we're going to understand the message of the minor prophets, we must understand understand and accept the fact, number one, that man is sinful. Here's another point that's made over and over again in these books. Not only is man sinful, but also judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. These prophets make it clear. That because God is a holy and righteous God, he cannot tolerate that which is opposed to his righteousness. He is necessarily opposed to sin because he is righteous. And because that's the case, get this folks, sobering truth, he is opposed to us because like scripture says, we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all failed to measure up. We've fallen short of God's glory. And the writers of these books in this section of Scripture make it clear that those who have sinned against God and continue in their sinful and wicked ways and do not heed God's word, they will face His judgment. Listen to the message of Obadiah. He begins his short book by speaking out against the pride of the Edomites. We'll discuss them later on. And he says this. He says, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. He says, You've been deceived 
by your pride. And because of that, and because you remain unrepentant toward God and unwilling to humble yourself before him, he says in verse 8, I will destroy you. He says, will I not destroy the wise, the proud, the haughty men of Edom? So the minor prophets are, are clear on these two points. Man is sinful and judgment is coming. And I want you to notice something else here. When, when, the, when the prophets give these prophecies, they're not just looking to the far distant future when Christ comes. These, these prophecies, though they are prophesying about and though they do have their ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns, they're also speaking of an immediate judgment. They're referring to an approaching and immediate judgment as well as a future judgment. That's why many of them wanted to run them out of town. Many in the northern and southern kingdoms wanted these prophets gone, out of their land because of their message of an immediate and certain judgment. When Hosea says to Israel, hear the word of the Lord, I will punish you for your ways and repay you for your deeds. He's speaking directly to them. And he is speaking of a judgment that's coming very soon. That's why, again, he and others were not all that popular. You'll you'll find when we're in the book of Amos, Amos was prophesying against those in the north, and they're like, get this guy out of here. The priest in the north wanted Amos gone. He's like, man, we got things good here. Take your message elsewhere. Though that's the case, get this. Though their message was unpopular, it was in fact true. God's judgment was coming. Both kingdoms fell along with other nations. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He warned them, they didn't respond, and they fell. They fell. Again, we learn a very simple yet foundational truth here. We learn that if God has said it, we should believe it. We should trust it and respond to it and share it with others. We should heed it. Because whatever God has promised, get this, folks, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. We learn that right here in these books, do we not? And this leads us right into our third point of the the minor prophet's message. Not only is man sinful and judgment is coming, but because that's the case, a response is necessary. Listen to Joel chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Joel says this, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. I love that. He wants a heart change. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Though many 
view the message of the prophets as being all judgment and all doom and gloom. These books are filled with teachings of God's mercy and His grace and His love toward people. In the book of Jonah, you have the wicked Ninevites repenting of sin from the top on down, and you have God turning His judgment away from them. And in many Of the 12 books of the minor prophets, you also have God making promises of a future redemption, a future restoration, which brings us to our fourth and final point this morning. Not only do we learn in these books that man is sinful, judgment is coming, a response is necessary, but notice point number four, we also learn future restoration is certain. Future redemption is certain. As I said in the beginning, whenever we read through an Old Testament book, it's important, folks, that we read it with New Testament eyes. And something you clearly see throughout these books is that these books point to Jesus. These books are all about Jesus. He is the one who ultimately makes right all that we have wronged. He is the future hope. Not just for Israel, but for every nation, for every people. In the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah begins with these words, the words of the Lord. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So Zephaniah begins his book with the word on God's judgment against all mankind. But notice how Zephaniah ends the book. He says in Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Wow. Who's Zephaniah talking about here? Who's he talking about? When he talks about the king of Israel, who is the Lord in your midst. Who is Zephaniah referring to when he says, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, the King of Israel, the Lord of glory, the the King of all kings, the King who is in their midst. That's in Zephaniah. So this, this future redemption, this future restoration that the minor prophets speak of in these books find their ultimate fulfillment in the king of Israel, the king of all kings, the king to come, the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus. Now you see why the minor prophets are needed? Now you see why they're rich? We need to study them. So though the minor prophets teach man is sinful, judgment is coming, a response is necessary, they also focus on this future redemption that is certain. So these are the major points that we're going to see made throughout this study through the minor prophets. And I want you to notice something here. Look back over these points here. Notice that these are not just the points from the minor prophets, right? 
This is not just the major message of the minor prophets. This is a major message of the Bible. This is the, this is the gospel. This is the gospel message. Throughout the Bible, we learn God is a righteous and holy God. And though he created everything right and, and good and created us in right relationship with himself and created us to live for him under his rule, we rebelled against him. And because God is a righteous and holy God, he rightly sets himself against us because we have rebelled against him. And scripture is clear. If we remain in that state, if we don't repent, if we don't turn back from our sin, turn back to God, we will face God and his wrath in the life to come. But though that's the case, though we all like sheep, have gone astray like the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53. God has sent his son to live for us. He's given his life for us. And he, God, has laid on his son the iniquity, the sins of us all so that we, through him, through Jesus, could be forgiven and made right with God again. Therefore, we're honest about our sin. Confess our sin turn from our sin, make Christ Lord of our life, God tells us very clearly in his word that he will forgive us our sin and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll restore us. He will redeem us. He will make us right with him forever. If you've never made that decision, there's no better time than right now to do so. Let's pray.